Chapter forty eight, part three of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 48 Succession and Characters of the Greek Emperors, Part 3. The Russians, who have borrowed from the Greeks the greatest part of their civil and ecclesiastical policy, preserved, till the last century, a singular institution in the marriage of the Tsar. They collected, not the virgins of every rank and of every province, a vain and romantic idea, but the daughters of the principal nobles, who awaited in the palace the choice of their sovereign. It is affirmed that a similar method was adopted in the nuptials of Theophilus. With a golden apple in his hand, he slowly walked between the two lines of contending beauties. His eye was detained by the charms of Acacia, and, in the awkwardness of the first declaration, the prince could only observe that, in this world, women had been the cause of much evil. "'And surely, sir,' she pertly replied, "'they have likewise been the occasion of much good.' This affectation of unseasonable wit displeased the imperial lover. He turned aside in disgust. Acacia concealed her mortification in a convent, and the modest silence of Theodora was rewarded with the golden apple. She deserved the love, but did not escape the severity of her lord. From the palace garden he beheld a vessel deeply laden and steering into the port. On the discovery that the precious cargo of Syrian luxury was the property of his wife, he condemned the ship to the flames with a sharp reproach, that her avarice had degraded the character of an empress into that of a merchant. Yet his last choice entrusted her with the guardianship of the empire and her son Michael, who was left an orphan in the fifth year of his age. The restoration of images, and the final extirpation of the iconoclasts, has endeared her name to the devotion of the Greeks, but in the fervour of religious zeal. Theodora entertained a grateful regard for the memory and salvation of her husband, after thirteen years of a prudent and frugal administration, she perceived the decline of her influence. But the second Irene imitated only the virtues of her predecessor. Instead of conspiring against the life or government of her son, she retired without a struggle, though not without a murmur, to the solitude of private life, deploring the ingratitude, the vices, and the inevitable ruin of the worthless youth. Among the successors of Nero and Elagabalus, we have not, hitherto, found the imitation of their vices, the character of a Roman prince who considered pleasure as the object of life, and virtue as the enemy of pleasure. Whatever might have been the maternal care of Theodora in the education of Michael Third, her unfortunate son was a king before he was a man. If the ambitious mother laboured to check the progress of reason, she could not call the ebullition of passion, and her selfish policy was justly repaid by the contempt and ingratitude of the headstrong youth. At the age of eighteen he rejected her authority, 
without feeling his own incapacity to govern the empire and himself. With Theodora, all gravity and wisdom retired from the court. Their place was supplied by the alternate dominion of vice and folly, and it was impossible, without fortifying the public esteem, to acquire or preserve the favour of the emperor. The millions of gold and silver which had been accumulated for the service of the state were lavished on the vilest of men, who flattered his passions and shared his pleasures. And in a reign of thirteen years, the richest of sovereigns was compelled to strip the palace and the churches of their precious furniture. Like Nero, he delighted in the amusements of the theatre, and sighed to be surpassed in the accomplishments in which he should have blushed to excel. Yet the studies of Nero in music and poetry betrayed some symptoms of a liberal taste. The more ignoble arts of the son of Theophilus were confined to the chariot race of the Hippodrome. The four factions which had agitated the peace still amused the idleness of the capital. For himself, the emperor assumed the blue livery. The three rival colours were distributed to his favourites, and in the vile, though eager contention, he forgot the dignity of his person and the safety of his dominions. He silenced the messenger of an invasion, who presumed to divert his attention in the most critical moment of the race, and by his command the importunate beacons were extinguished, that too frequently spread the alarm from Tarsus to Constantinople. The most skilful charioteers obtained the first place in his confidence and esteem. Their merit was profusely rewarded. The emperor feasted in their houses, and presented their children at the baptismal font. And while he applauded his own popularity, he affected to blame the cold and stately reserve of his predecessors. The unnatural lusts which had degraded even the manhood of Nero were banished from the world. Yet the strength of Michael was consumed by the indulgence of love and intemperance. In his midnight revels, when his passions were inflamed by wine, he was provoked to issue the most sanguinary commands. And if any feelings of humanity were left, he was reduced, with the return of sense, to approve the solitary disobedience of his servants. But the most extraordinary feature in the character of Michael is the profane mockery of the religion of his country. The superstition of the Greeks might indeed excite the smile of a philosopher, but his smile would have been rational and temperate, and he must have condemned the ignorant folly of a youth who insulted the objects of public veneration. A buffoon of the court was invested in the robes of a patriarch. His twelve metropolitans, among whom the emperor was ranked, assumed their ecclesiastical garments. They used, or abused, the sacred vessels of the altar. And in their bacchanalian feasts, the Holy Communion was administered in a nauseous compound of vinegar and mustard. Nor were these impious spectacles concealed from the eyes of the city. On the day of a solemn festival, the emperor, with his bishops or buffoons, rode on asses through the street, encountered the true patriarch at the head of his clergy, and, by the licentious shouts and obscene gestures, disordered the gravity of the Christian procession. The devotion of Michael appeared only in some offence to reason or piety. 
he received his theatrical crowns from the statue of the Virgin, and an imperial tomb was violated for the sake of burning the bones of Constantine the iconoclast. By this extravagant conduct, the son of Theophilus became as contemptible as he was odious. Every citizen was impatient for the deliverance of his country, and even the favourites of the moment were apprehensive that a caprice might snatch away what a caprice had bestowed. In the thirtieth year of his age, and in the hour of intoxication and sleep, Michael the Third was murdered in his chamber by the founder of a new dynasty, whom the emperor had risen to inequality of rank and power. The genealogy of Basil the Macedonian, if it be not the spurious offspring of pride and flattery, exhibits a genuine picture of the revolution of the most illustrious families. The Arsacides, the rivals of Rome, possessed the sceptre of the East near four hundred years. A younger branch of these Parthian kings continued to reign in Armenia, and their royal descendants survived the partition and servitude of that ancient monarchy. Two of these, Aratabanus and Calainus, escaped or retired to the court of Leo I. His bounty seated them in a safe and hospitable exile, in the province of Macedonia. Adrianople was their final settlement. During several generations they maintained the dignity of their birth, and their Roman patriotism rejected the tempting offers of the Persian and Arabian powers, who recalled them to their native country. But their splendour was insensibly clouded by time and poverty, and the father of Basil was reduced to a small farm, which he cultivated with his own hands. Yet he scorned to disgrace the blood of the Arsacides by a plebeian alliance. His wife, a widow of Adrianople, was pleased to count among her ancestors the great Constantine, and their royal infant was connected by some dark affinity of lineage or country with the Macedonian Alexander. No sooner was he born than the cradle of Basil, his family, and his city were swept away by an inundation of the Bulgarians. He was educated a slave in a foreign land, and in this severe discipline he acquired the hardiness of body and flexibility of mind which promoted his future elevation. In the age of youth or manhood, he shared the deliverance of the Roman captives, who generously broke their fetters, marched through Bulgaria to the shores of the Euxine, defeated two armies of barbarians, embarked in the ships which had been stationed for their reception, and returned to Constantinople, from whence they were distributed to their respective homes. But the freedom of Basil was naked and destitute. His farm was ruined by the calamities of war. After his father's death, his manual labour or service could no longer support a family of orphans, and he resolved to seek a more conspicuous theatre, in which every virtue and every vice may lead to the paths of greatness. The first night of his arrival at Constantinople, without friends or money, the weary pilgrim slept on the steps of the church at St. Diomede. He was fed by the casual hospitality of a monk, and was introduced to the service of a cousin and namesake of the Emperor Theophilus, who, though himself of a diminutive person, was always followed by a train of tall and handsome domestics. Basil attended his patron to the government of Pilopinesus, eclipsed 
by his personal merit, the birth and dignity of Theophilus, and formed a useful connection with the wealthy and charitable matron of Patras. Her spiritual, or carnal love, embraced the young adventurer, whom she adopted as her son. Danielis presented him with thirty slaves, and the produce of bounty was expanded in the support of his brothers, and the purchase of some large estates in Macedonia. His gratitude or ambition still attached him to the service of Theophilus, and a lucky accident recommended him to the notice of the court. A famous wrestler, in the train of the Bulgarian ambassadors, had defied, at the royal banquet, the boldest and most robust of the Greeks. The strength of Basil was praised, he accepted the challenge, and the barbarian champion was overthrown at the first onset. A beautiful but vicious horse was condemned to be hamstrung. It was subdued by the dexterity and courage of the servant of Theophilus, and his conqueror was promoted to an honourable rank in the imperial stables. But it was impossible to obtain the confidence of Michael without complying with his vices, and his new favourite, the great chamberlain of the palace, was raised and supported by a disgraceful marriage with a royal concubine and the dishonour of his sister, who succeeded to her place. The public administration had been abandoned to the Caesar Bardas, the brother and enemy of Theodora. But the arts of female influence persuaded Michael to hate and to fear his uncle. He was drawn from Constantinople, under the pretence of a Cretian expedition, and stabbed in the tent of audience by the sword of the chamberlain, and in the presence of the emperor. About a month after this execution, Basil was invested with the title of Augustus, and the government of the empire. He supported this unequal association, till his influence was fortified by popular esteem. His life was endangered by the caprice of the emperor, and his dignity was profaned by a second colleague, who had rowed in the galleys, Yet the murder of his benefactor must be condemned as an act of ingratitude and treason, and the churches which he dedicated to the name of St. Michael were a poor and puerile expiation of his guilt. The different ages of Basil I may be compared with those of Augustus. The situation of the Greek did not allow him in his earliest youth to lead an army against his country, or to prescribe the nobles of her sons but his aspiring genius stooped to the arts of a slave. He dissembled his ambition, and even his virtues, and grasped, with the bloody hand of an assassin, the empire which he ruled with the wisdom and tenderness of a parent. A private citizen may feel his interest repugnant to his duty, but it must be from a deficiency of sense or courage that an absolute monarch can separate his happiness from his glory, or his glory from the public welfare. The life, or panegyric, of Basil has indeed been composed and published under the long reign of his descendants, but even their stability on the throne may be justly ascribed to the superior merit of their ancestor. In his character, his grandson Constantine has attempted to delineate a perfect image of royalty, but that feeble prince, unless he had copied a real model, could not easily have soared so high above the level of his own conduct or conceptions. 
but the most solid praise of basil is drawn from the comparison of a ruined and flourishing monarchy that which he wrestled from the dissolute michael and that which he bequeathed to the macedonian dynasty the evils which had been sanctified by time and example were corrected by his master hand and he revived if not the national spirit at least the order and majesty of the roman empire his application was indefatigable his temper cool his understanding vigorous and decisive and in his practice he observed that rare and salutary moderation which pursues each virtue at an equal distance between the opposite vices his military service had been confined to the palace nor was the emperor endowed with the spirit or the talents of a warrior yet under his reign the roman arms were again formidable to the barbarians as soon as he had formed a new army by discipline and exercise he appeared in person at the banks of the euphrates curbed the pride of the saracens and suppressed the dangerous though just revolt of the manicheans his indignation against a rebel who had long eluded his pursuit provoked him to wish and to pray that by the grace of god he might drive three arrows into the head of chrysocare that odious head which had been obtained by treason rather than by valour was suspended from a tree and thrice exposed to the dexterity of the imperial archer a base revenge against the dead more worthy of the times than of the character of basil but his principal merit was in the civil administration of the finances and of the laws to replenish an exhausted treasury it was proposed to resume the lavish and ill-placed gifts of his predecessor his prudence abated one moiety of the restitution and a sum of twelve hundred thousand pounds was instantly procured to answer the most pressing demands and to allow some space for the mature options of economy among the various schemes for the improvement of the revenue a new mode was suggested of capitation or tribute which would have too much depended on the arbitrary discretion of the assessors a sufficient list of honest and able agents was instantly produced by the minister but on the more careful scrutiny of basil himself only two could be found who might be safely entrusted with such dangerous powers but they justified his esteem by declining his confidence but the serious and successful diligence of the emperor established by degrees the equitable balance of property and payment of receipt and expenditure a peculiar fund was appropriated to each service and a public method secured the interest of the prince and the property of the people after reforming the luxury he assigned two patrimonial estates to supply the decent plenty of the imperial table the contributions of the subject were revised for his defence and the residue was employed in the establishment of the capital and provinces a taste for building however costly may deserve some praise and much excuse for thence industry is fed art is encouraged and some object is attained of public emolument or pleasure the use of a road an aqueduct or a hospital is obvious and solid and the hundred churches that arose by the command of basil were consecrated to the devotion of the age 
In the character of a judge, he was assiduous and impartial, desirous to save, but not afraid to strike. The oppressors of the people were severely chastised, but his personal foes, whom it might be unsafe to pardon, were condemned, after the loss of their eyes, to a life of solitude and repentance. The change of language and manners demanded a revision of the obsolete jurisprudence of Justinian. The voluminous body of his institutes, pandects, code, and novels, was digested under forty titles in the Greek idiom. And the basilics, which were improved and completed by his son and grandson, must be referred to the original genius of the founder of their race. This glorious reign was terminated by an accident in the chase. A furious stag entangled his horns in the belt of Basil, and raised him from his horse. He was rescued by an attendant, who cut the belt and slew the animal. But the fall, or the fever, exhausted the strength of the aged monarch, and he expired in the palace amidst the tears of his family and people. If he struck off the head of the faithful servant for presuming to draw his sword against his sovereign, the pride of despotism, which had laid dormant in his life, revived in the last moments of despair, when he no longer wanted or valued the opinion of mankind. Of the four sons of the emperor, Constantine died before his father, whose grief and credulity were amused by a flattering impostor and a vain apparition. Stephen, the youngest, was content with the honours of a patriarch and a saint. Both Leo and Alexander were alike invested with the purple, but the powers of government were solely exercised by the elder brother. The name of Leo the Sixth has been dignified with the title of philosopher, and the union of the prince and the sage, of the active and speculative virtues, would indeed constitute the perfection of human nature but the claims of Leo are far short of this ideal excellence. Did he reduce his passions and appetites under the dominion of reason? His life was spent in the pomp of the palace, in the society of his wives and concubines, and even the clemency which he showed, and the peace which he strove to preserve, must be imputed to the softness and indolence of his character. Did he subdue his prejudices and those of his subjects? His mind was tinged with the most puerile superstition. The influence of the clergy and the errors of the people were consecrated by his laws. And the oracles of Leo, which reveal in prophetic style the fates of the empire, are founded on the arts of astrology and divination. If we still inquire the reason of his sage appellation, it can only be replied, that the son of Basil was less ignorant than the greater part of his contemporaries in church and state. That his education had been directed by the learned Phiotius, and that several books of profane and ecclesiastical science were composed by the pen, or in the name, of the imperial philosopher. But the reputation of his philosophy and religion was overthrown by a domestic vice, the repetition of his nuptials, the primitive ideas of the merit and holiness of celibacy were preached by the monks and entertained by the Greeks. Marriage was allowed as a necessary means for the propagation of mankind. After the death of either party, 
the survivor might satisfy, by a second union, the weakness or the strength of the flesh. But a third marriage was censured as a state of legal fornication, and a fourth was a sin or scandal as yet unknown to the Christians of the East. In the beginning of his reign, Leo himself had abolished the state of concubines, and condemned, without annulling, third marriages. But his patriotism and love soon compelled him to violate his own laws, and to incur the penance, which in a similar case he had imposed on his subjects. In his three first alliances, his nuptial bed was unfruitful. The emperor acquired a female companion, and the empire a legitimate heir. The beautiful Zoe was introduced into the palace as a concubine, and, after a trial of her fecundity, and the birth of Constantine, her lover declared his intention of legitimating the mother and the child, by the celebration of his fourth nuptials. But the patriarch Nicholas refused his blessing. The imperial baptism of the young prince was obtained by a promise of separation, and the contumacious husband of Zoe was excluded from the communion of the faithful. Neither the fear of exile, nor the desertion of his brethren, nor the authority of the Latin church, nor the danger of failure or doubt in the succession of the empire, could bend the spirit of the inflexible monk. After the death of Leo, he was recalled from exile to the civil and ecclesiastical administration, and the Edict of Union, which was promulgated in the name of Constantine, condemned the future scandal of fourth marriages, and left a tacit imputation on his own birth. In the Greek language, purple and porphyry are the same word, and as the colours of nature are invariable, we may learn that a dark deep red was the Tyrian dye which stained the purple of the ancients. An apartment of the Byzantine palace was lined with porphyry. It was reserved for use of the pregnant empress, and the royal birth of their children was expressed by the appellation of porphyrogeniti, or born in the purple. Several of the Roman princes had been blessed with an heir, but this peculiar surname was first applied to Constantine the Seventh. His life and titular reign were of equal duration. But of fifty-four years, six had elapsed before his father's death, and the son of Leo was ever the voluntary or reluctant subject of those who oppressed his weakness or abused his confidence. His uncle Alexander, who had long been invested with the title of Augustus, was the first colleague and governor of the young prince. But in a rapid career of vice and folly, the brother of Leo had emulated the reputation of Michael, and, when he was extinguished by a timely death, he entertained a project of castrating his nephew, and leaving the empire to a worthless favourite. The succeeding years of the minority of Constantine were occupied by his mother Zoe, and a succession or council of seven regents, who pursued their interest, gratified their passions, abandoned the republic, supplanted each other, and finally vanished in the presence of a soldier. From an obscure origin, Romanus Lacupenus had raised himself to the command of the naval armies, 
and in the anarchy of the times, had deserved, or at least had obtained, the national esteem. With a victorious and affectionate fleet, he sailed from the mouth of the Danube into the harbour of Constantinople, and was hailed as the deliverer of the people, and the guardian of the prince. His supreme office was at first defined by the new appellation of father of the emperor, but Romanus soon disdained the subordinate powers of a minister, and assumed, with the titles of Caesar and Augustus, the full independence of royalty, which he held near five-and-twenty years. His three sons, Christopher, Stephen, and Constantine, were successively adorned with the same honours, and the lawful emperor was degraded from the first to the fifth rank in this college of princes. Yet in the preservation of his life and crown, he might still applaud his own fortune and clemency of the usurper. The examples of ancient and modern history would have excused the ambition of Romanus. The powers and the laws of the empire were in his hand. The spurious birth of Constantine would have justified his exclusion, and the grave or the monastery was open to receive the son of the concubine. But Lecapenus did not appear to have possessed either the virtues or the vices of a tyrant. The spirit and activity of his private life dissolved away in the sunshine of the throne, and in his licentious pleasures he forgot the safety both of the republic and of his family. Of a mild and religious character, he respected the sanctity of oaths, the innocence of the youth, the memory of his parents, and the attachment of the people. The studious temper and retirement of Constantine disarmed the jealousy of power. His books and music, his pen and his pencil, were a constant source of amusement, and if he could improve a scanty allowance by the sale of his pictures, if their price was not enhanced by the name of the artist, he was endeavoured with a personal talent, which few princes could employ in the hour of adversity. The fall of Romanus was occasioned by his own vices and those of his children. After the decease of Christopher, his eldest son, the two surviving brothers quarrelled with each other, and conspired against their father. At the hour of noon, when all strangers were regularly excluded from the palace, they entered his apartment with an armed force, and conveyed him, in the habit of a monk, to a small island in the Propontis, which was peopled by a religious community. The rumour of this domestic revolution excited a tumult in the city. But Porfirio Genitus alone, the true and lawful emperor, was the object of the public care. And the sons of Lecopenus were taught, by tardy experience, that they had achieved a guilty and perilous enterprise for the benefit of their rival. Their sister Helena, the wife of Constantine, revealed, or supposed, their treacherous design of assassinating her husband at the royal banquet. His loyal adherents were alarmed, and the two usurpers were prevented, seized, degraded from the purple, and embarked for the same island and monastery where their father had been so lately confined. Old Romanus met them on the beach with a sarcastic smile, and, after a just reproach of their folly and ingratitude, presented his imperial colleagues with an equal share of his water and vegetable diet. In the fortieth year of his reign, Constantine the Seventh obtained the possession of the eastern world, 
which he ruled, or seemed to rule, near fifteen years. But he was devoid of that energy of character which could emerge into a life of action and glory, and the studies, which had amused and dignified his leisure, were incompatible with the serious duties of a sovereign. The emperor neglected the practice to instruct his son Romanus in the theory of government. While he indulged the habits of intemperance and sloth, he dropped the reins of the administration into the hands of Helena, his wife, and, in the shifting scene of her favour and caprice, each minister was regretted in the promotion of a more worthless successor. Yet the birth and misfortunes of Constantine had endeared him to the Greeks. They excused his failings, they respected his learning, his innocence and charity, his love of justice, and the ceremony of his funeral was mourned with the unfeigned tears of his subjects. The body, according to ancient custom, lay in state in the vestibule of the palace, and the civil and military officers, the patricians, the senate, and the clergy, approached in due order to adore and kiss the inanimate corpse of their sovereign. Before the procession moved towards the imperial sepulchre, a herald proclaimed this awful admonition. Arise, O king of the world, and obey the summons of the king of kings. The death of Constantine was imputed to poison, and his son Romanus, who derived that name from his maternal grandfather, ascended the throne of Constantinople. A prince, who, at the age of twenty, could be suspected of anticipating his inheritance, must have been already lost in the public esteem. Yet Romanus was rather weak than wicked, and the largest share of his guilt was transferred to his wife, Theophano, a woman of base origin, masculine spirit, and flagacious manners. The sense of personal glory and public happiness, the true pleasure of royalty, were unknown to the son of Constantine, and while the two brothers Nicephorus and Leo triumphed over the Saracens, the hours which the emperor owed to his people were consumed in strenuous idleness. In the morning he visited the circus, at noon he feasted the senators, the greater part of the afternoon he spent in this foreristerium, or tennis court, the only theatre of his victories. From thence he passed over to the Asiatic side of the Bosphorus, hunted and killed four wild boars of the largest size, and returned to the palace, proudly content with the labours of the day. In strength and beauty he was conspicuous above his equals, tall and straight as a young cypress. His complexion was fair and florid, his eyes sparkling, his shoulders broad, his nose long and aquiline. Yet even these perfections were insufficient to fix the love of Theophano, and, after a reign of four years, she mingled for her husband the same deadly drought which she had composed for his father. By his marriage with this impious woman, Romanus the younger left two sons, Basil the second and Constantine the ninth, and two daughters, Theophany and Anne. The eldest sister was given to Otho the second, emperor of the West. The younger became the wife of Wolodomir, great duke and apostle of Russia, and by the marriage of her granddaughter with Henry I, king of France, the blood of the Macedonians, 
and perhaps of the Arasakides, still flows in the veins of the Bourbon line. After the death of her husband, the Empress aspired to reign in the name of her sons, the elder of whom was five, and the younger only two years of age. But she soon felt the instability of a throne, which was supported by a female who could not be esteemed, and two infants who could not be feared. Theophano looked round for a protector, and threw herself into the arms of the bravest soldier. Her heart was capacious, but the deformity of the new favourite rendered it more than probable that interest was the motive and excuse of her love. Nicophorus Phocus united, in the popular opinion, the double merit of a hero and a saint. In the former character his qualifications were genuine and splendid, the descendant of a race illustrious by their military exploits. He had displayed, in every station and in every province, the courage of a soldier and the conduct of a chief. And Nicephorus was crowned with recent laurels, from the important conquest of the Isle of Crete. His religion was of a more ambiguous cast, and his hair-cloth, his fasts, his pious idiom, and his wish to retire from the business of the world, were a convenient mask for his dark and dangerous ambition. Yet he imposed on a holy patriarch, by whose influence, and by a decree of the senate, he was entrusted, during the minority of the young princes, with the absolute and independent command of the oriental armies. And as soon as he had secured the leaders and the troops, he boldly marched to Constantinople, trampled on his enemies, avowed with correspondence with the empress, and, without degrading her sons, assumed, with the title of Augustus, the preeminence of rank and the plenitude of power. But his marriage with Theophany was refused by the same patriarch who had placed the crown on his head. By his second nuptials he incurred a year of canonical penance. A bar of spiritual affinity was opposed to their celebration, and some evasion and perjury were required to silence the scruples of the clergy and the people. The popularity of the emperor was lost in the purple. In a reign of six years he provoked the hatred of strangers and subjects, and the hypocrisy and avarice of the first Nicephorus were revived in his successor. Hypocrisy I shall never justify or palliate, but I will dare to observe that the odious vice of avarice is of all others most hastily arraigned, and most unmercifully condemned. In a private citizen, our judgment seldom expects an accurate scrutiny into his fortune and expense. And in a steward of the public treasure, for guilty is always a virtue, and the increase of tax is too often an indispensable duty. In the use of his patrimony, the generous temper of Nicephorus had been proved, and the revenue was strictly applied to the service of the state. Each spring the emperor marched in person against the Saracens, and every Roman might compute the employment of his taxes in triumphs, conquests, and the security of the eastern barrier. End of chapter 48, part 3